morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever and whenever you may be, and welcome to episode 145 of the Fade to Black podcast. I'm Hannah Flint. I'm Clarice Lockery. And I'm Amon Woman. This week, Amon speaks to Sterling K. Brown about American fiction, plus we review Sean Durkin's tragedy-laced wrestling drama The Iron Claw, Steve McQueen's portrait of his adoptive home Amsterdam, Occupied City, and Jeannie Finley's celebration of writer and activist Aubrey Gordon, your fat friend. Plus, in our hot take, with the Oscars adding a brand new casting category for its 2026 ceremony, we make a few category suggestions of our own. Best critic? (laughs) (laughs) Save it for the end, Han. Uh, First up, let's catch up. Amon, what's what's crackalacking? What's been happening? Yeah, it's it's been a fairly interesting, exciting few days. We were, of course, as we teased on last week's episode, at the London Critics uh, Awards uh, on this past Sunday. And that was a lot of fun. Uh, we were both uh, dressed to the nines, looking fabulous. Um, and there were a few cool people there as well. Um, Andrew Scott, Paul Meskell, me, McKenna Bruce, Jeffrey Wright, Claude Jefferson. Um, so yeah, that was fun. And I think on the whole, it was a really good night. Um, it was interesting to see who ultimately won. I feel like it was good that we had the winners we had. I don't think it's necessarily going to be representative of what's going to be happening in BAFTAs and Oscars, but I like that it makes it feel like you know we, we did our own thing. Um, and I, I like that because, for instance, Oppenheimer won nothing on the night. I don't think that's happening <laughs> in, in Oscars, uh, so that sort of thing. But um, you know, can't argue with the zone of interest, winning big, uh, all of us strangers won a few awards. How to have sex won a couple. So yeah, it was a, it was a nice spread and some worthy winners, and just a generally fun night. I thought my favorite bit of the night, apart from other things, but uh, was when at the bar afterwards, and Jeffrey Wright and me looked, and he was like Hannah, and called me over, and we had a good little chat mm. and chin work. So. Nice. That was nice after a little chat. Um, yeah, that's good. How's your week been, Clarice? Um, yeah, I, I got hives. <laughs> got full body hives. That's it. Thank you. <laughs> I'm glad you clarified because a lot of people are like beehives. And to be honest, mm. no, I feel like that's not something beyond the realm of possibilities. I feel like you'd be a good beekeeper. Uh, no, I'm terrified of bees uh, to the point I can't really watch bee-related movies. Oh, wow. Um, struggled a lot with Candyman. That's why we didn't, that's why we didn't review The Beekeeper. <laughs> not seeing that movie. <laughs> Even though it's got Josh Hutchinson Not starring Clarice Lockwood. Absolutely not. <laughs> the only exception to the rule is the Wicker Man remake. Because those bees are really <laughs> fake, and um, I love Nicolas Cage, so bigger priorities. But in general, I- no. Iconic line: "The bees, not the bees." Tell Killing it. me won't bring back your goddamn honey. Is my favorite line. <laughs> <laughs> what is your favorite? I know there's a, there's a lot of sort of competition for this, but what do you have a favorite ever of all time? Nicolas Cage line reading. Um, oh, it's from Vampire's Kiss, which is my favourite Nicolas Cage movie, where he's talking about filing, and he goes, A, B, C, D, A, <laughs> the entire alphabet. 
and he's like, I never fire wrong. Not once. Never. <laughs> it's so good. I love that movie. And it's, I feel like a little bit underrated in the Nicolas Cage filmography. So if you haven't seen it, watch your Empire's Kiss. Okay. How about you, Hannah? Oh, gosh. Um, I do really like it in um, Gone in 60 Seconds, where he's just like, listen to the music, and then he just suddenly like, goes, oh, yeah. let's go. That's right. That's right. And I was like, that's yeah. like such a Nicolas Cageism yeah. to me. What about you, Amon? Yeah. I think for me, I mean, it's, it, there's two. <laughs> I, think, I, can't, I can't remember the name of the film, but the one where he says testicles um, is great. The one, the one where he gets his dick shot off. Chris, you, you surely know the name of this film. What is this film? Wait, is this like a... We, I'm pretty sure like we did. Oh, is it not recent? Oh, is it? Is, yeah, it's fairly recent. I'm very aware of... Is it... No, no. It's, it's not Pig. It's so what's that, that one, that weird one. That one where he runs around Nate, like with his pants down in that cabin. Oh, Prisoners because of Ghostland. Because he's, he's, he's wearing a costume which has a bot, which is a bomb. Was that Prisoners of Ghostland? Dream I'm scenario. Going, I, yes, um, I think that's it. Prisoners of Ghostland. Um, so there's that one, and then the other one. <laughs> the other one is from Kickass. Uh, now switch to Kryptonite. That one. <laughs> Oh, Nicolas Cage, legend. Well, unfortunately, we don't have any Nicolas Cage on this week, but we have some people entering a cage of sorts. Mm, kind of a ring. Oh, yeah. I don't know, a ring. <laughs> a I don't ring. know. I'm trying we something do. here. Let's let's just yeah. go with it. Here is his Iron Claw. Morning. Pants tomorrow, please, David. Perry, I want you to join your brothers in the ring. Yes, sir. I love that. Woo! Now, we all know Carrie's my favorite, then Kev, then David, then Mike. But the rankings can always change. What do you want in life, Kevin Von Eric? More ribs. <laughs> I want to be with my family. You know, be with my brothers. What do you like to do with your brothers? I want to live that way forever. I want to live that way forever. Big tune. Love that it closes this this film. Love the way it's used in the film. We're going to get into that in just a little bit. The Iron Claw depicts the true story of the inseparable Von Erich brothers who made history in the intensely competitive world of professional wrestling in the early 1980s. Through tragedy and triumph under the shadow of their dominating father and coach. The brothers seek larger-than-life immortality on the biggest stage in sports. It's written and directed by Sean Durkin, and it stars Zac Efron, Jeremy Allen White, Harris Dickinson, Stanley Simons, Maura Tierney, Holt McElhinney, and Lily James. I like me some wrestling, so I was a little bit familiar with the story. I get the impression just from talking to you a little bit beforehand that you are not as familiar with the story and with wrestling in general. What did you think of those wrestling scenes when they were in the ring doing their thing? Please. No, I don't know anything about wrestling. Um, I do know about family curses because uh, my family's got one. So I was like, ah, relatable. <laughs> what? what, what? You can't just drop that and yeah, not know. Yeah, I was told no, once. Not, 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 not I, tell us I think it's me. Great grandmother, great great grandmother, someone someone 
grandmother dabbled in the occult and like cursed the bloodline <laughs> Um, it kind of tracks <laughs> so far. <laughs> we'll see how far it goes. We'll see Is how this many why generations. You have hives? Probably, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's all, all connected. connected. Um, you need to wear a Nazar to fend off the evil eye. Yeah, because I don't know what this is the thing. I don't know what kind of curse it was, so I don't know uh, what route to take to undo it. <laughs> um, so we're just vibing. We're just vibing with the curse instead. Uh, so I, but I, yeah, I didn't, wasn't familiar with this story. Um, and I found the wrestling scenes themselves quite interesting because they, there wasn't really much of the showmanship that I do associate with wrestling. Like the glad kind of, there is a good bit of a glitz and a glamour and, and obviously a narrative to it. I feel like what was smart about the scenes here is that, Sean Durkin, um, guy really went in on like bodily harm and bone crunching and uh, like horrible noises <laughs> and just the actual like brutality inflicted in the ring, even though I this is the thing I don't super understand the the wrestling fake in air quotes part of it so i'm scared of saying something wrong mm. <laughs> um, but even though there is a sense of narrative <laughs> around it you still see the like immense toil it takes on the these men's bodies um and this is really sad it reminded me of a statue a classical statue called the farnes hercules <laughs> which is if you <laughs> google it it's when he's like He's kind of done all his labors and the man looks so fucking tired and you can see like his muscles sagging and just this like weariness and he's been beat up so many times that like the soul has been sucked out of his body and I felt like that's the vibe I was getting from the wrestling in this movie. Now there's a very thin line between fake and real and I feel like this film captures that when they're in the ring doing their thing. Um, Hannah, there's a lot of toxic masculinity in this film, to put it mildly. Um, <laughs> a lot of it coming from uh, the father, played by Holt McAlani, who play, plays him very, very well. What did you make of that fatherly relationship with the sons and how this film uh, proceeded to depict that? Yeah, it's just really tragic, isn't it? Um, um, I mm. think what I really like about Sean Durkin is he's a very, very subtle filmmaker. Um, we've seen it in The Nest. Sorry, um, uh, what's it? Martha Marcy, May Marlene. There's, I guess, there's no kind of specific sort of outburst like melt. Like it doesn't. It's not. It doesn't. It really ever gets really like big. It's just these very like, just cutting with just the simplicity of the words and the delivery. Um, I think Colt did an excellent performance on that. Um, I mean, God, competitive dads. I mean, give me my. <laughs> There's, there used to be this fascio, um, fascio sketch. I love how you're quoting like classic statues and I'm like, fascio. <laughs> you contain <laughs> multitudes on the like, beta podcast. Dad. <laughs> yeah. There's a, I think there's a, there's a sketch about a competitive dad who plays with his kids, but he's like playing with them to beat them, like just absolutely like trounce them, you know. Um, uh, so, yeah, I... I just felt really sad all the time watching this. It's very bleak. Um, and and I, I also think there is, 
you know, we talk about toxic masculinity, but there's also like, I think Mora Tierney mm. is as the mother, I mean, as a scene pretty early on where you can see like, you know, I mean, a few times cult, like the dad gives a hard time is with the youngest son. Um, it's like, you need to pick this up. You need to be, you know, whatever. And he also has the ranking yeah. system of like, who's his favorite was just like crazy. But um, Zac Efron's character, Kevin. what's his name? Uh, Kevin comes into his mother and said, hey, could you, she's like, I'm getting ready for church. Kevin goes to his mother, like, could you get dad to kind of lay off a little bit on him? And she's just like, uh, I don't get involved in that. That's your up to your dad, you know, or you speak to your brother, that's you do it. Like, it was just very much like this woman who seems to have just allowed these things to happen. And I found that such a, this disengagement with, um, her as a character, as a mother, where it felt like a very Christian woman who didn't seem to understand, I guess, I don't know, very traditional sort of tr Christian woman who kind of just thinks, well, I'm just, you know, I did my job. I'm off to do stuff. I do the housework and all that. It's not my business to get involved in that. And I just want to keep up appearances. But, but then seeing her kind of like sort of unraveling over the process of the film as tragedy hits and then hits... There's a final line in it, which I won't say, but um, I just thought it was like just that how everything had changed. And it was just like uh, between the like husband and wife in that sense. Um, yeah, I thought that was like really like perfectly delivered. You are right in that it is very bleak and we will get to that bleakness momentarily. But one of the things that really worked well for me in this film was that brotherly love that we absolutely feel between these four guys. Um who really build each other up, who stick up for each other. The, the love that is felt when they sneak off to a concert, which I think it's uh, Mike who's, who's playing. He, he's, he's the guy who just wants to play in a band. And yeah. And the look these on these guys' faces as this guy is playing and doing what he's doing and being completely at home with who he is. It's so like proud of our bro type like, and, and it really as somebody who has four siblings uh there's a lot of sort of recognizability and 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 the love that they feel for each other and because of that that is why the moments that do come sort of in the second and third act and just keep on coming that is partly why they hit as hard as they do because through them we care about their relationships with each other Chloe's um or i don't know brothers <laughs> um yeah i love the line i love the line where just the way zach efron delivers look at my beautiful mm. brothers like i feel his performance is really like that's where the the sentimental side of it and the pure side of it comes out. and i think he does it really well well where he doesn't push it too mm. far but you feel like there's absolute sincerity emanating off this guy um, which is interesting, yeah, like, it is a movie about toxic masculinity, and yet, I, like, the actual relationship between the brothers is quite, mm -hmm. it was Healthy. a lot healthier, yeah. yeah, it's a lot healthier than I was expecting, because, you know, there is this ranking system, and I was like, oh god, they're all gonna turn on each other, this is gonna be mm -hmm. so horrible, and there's this really key scene between, um, Zac Efron and Harris Dickinson, where they're mm -hmm. in a bathroom stall, and they're about to like they're about to have a conversation about favoritism 
but it just goes in like the opposite way and they have this really sincere and this open conversation about it and I think it is really nice to have a movie that isn't about men who can't communicate to each other because they can communicate Mm. to each other Mm. but the tragedy of the movie is that there's something beyond that that they just can't get over like that's the curse element you know the film sort of plays with the idea that maybe the curse is real but also that what we talk about when a family curse is when there is sometimes an inevitability of circumstance and the way that these young men were set up it didn't matter how much that they loved for each other they cared for each other they tried so hard but there was a direction that they were headed in and that's kind of you can't kind of take the train off the tracks um so yeah i loved all the performances were great i just i'd also add like you know, I guess because wrestling in this context is like a real outwardly show of masculinity, but I think it's less about that and more about toxic parenting and mm. expectations and the pressures of that sort of like, you know, I guess there's that whole idea that, you know, to have a have children is like immortality because it keep, keeps you going on. And it was just this idea that, they had to be forged in the image of their father. And if they didn't meet that, so it's about, I guess, toxic, like paternity, you know what I mean? Like toxic fatherhood, really. But also I want to include like mothering as well. Cause as you said, they they do love each other like um, unconditionally and they're there for each other, but they're also kind of really f- pitted against one another in ways that, feel wholly unnecessary um and yeah definitely wouldn't get that i definitely get less of that parenting style coming together now but i also think you know you were saying i think what i really liked about how it was shot is how often we have so much in many of the brothers within the same frame so that we see their reactions to certain situations i mean when you know the there's so many heartbreaking moments where you're just like there's like you know wide shot on the ring and they've just announced that one <laughs> the one brother is going to be the kind of big star and not the one that they thought it was and it just holds that scene for so long and you're just looking and you're just looking between faces and like the shift and like oh my god processing it at the same time you know this is a unit i guess in a way that becomes fractured because of that paternal influence so i think yeah the way that he that the Sean used the camera work to kind of show that fracturing and show that breakdown I thought it was really good there's been some talk about the fact that Sean Durkin has decided to just completely omit one of the brothers from this film uh, because there's a lot more there's even more sadness if you can imagine it to the story Um, and he did that because if he included that brother story as well, it might have been too much sadness for the audience to take, in his opinion. I happen to agree with that opinion, um, especially because the fate of that particular brother is just so cartoonishly sad that it might have been too much, especially for audiences who may who may have been unfamiliar with the story. Uh, Chris, did you know about that side of things? And what do, what do you think, yourself? Yes, because I'm very informed. (laughs) (laughs) I shouldn't even ask. Of course you know. Chris is a humongous (laughs) wrestling fan. He knows everything. I do think Sean Durkin kind of took the right steps ethically in making this film because 
he was very upfront that he wanted to write the script in isolation, which I think is, mm. is fine because he is, you know, a storyteller and he wanted to tell the story first and have his perspective on it. But then he did contact the family afterwards, right before filming, to say, okay, I'm making these artistic decisions and he explained why because there's also certain children are um kind of grandchildren like kids of the boys are not in the movie and so he contacted them and said hey you know you are not going to be in this film but this is my reason why i've done it and it seems like through that the family is sort of happily that this movie's being made and they've there was like a statement from kevin saying like look i understand that this is not the true story but, you know, I'm cool with it being told, which is kind of the ideal situation that you want for a biopic is for the if there are living subjects for them to, to you know, they're not necessarily involved, but they're aware and they're like, OK, I'm aware this is not 100 percent truth. And like, I'm OK with it. Uh, so, yeah, I think, you know, it's I think with the admitting of the brother, it it, it is what it is and i th i think he had his reasons to to tell the version of the story that he did and i think it works and i think the family seemed to be okay with it so one name that has been consistently missing from the awards discussions is zach efron um he is superb in this he is the heart and soul of this movie and as he charts the progression of kevin who has, in his words, eldest brother syndrome. Um, it's really, when when the dam breaks, it hits hard. Um, and he has to be the one to shoulder the depiction of that. And I think he's absolutely superb. Um, Hannah, should Zac Efron be in the awards discussion more than he has been? I mean, I don't know. I, sorry, I, I don't, it's, it's, awards, I, I, don't really care about that thing i think he does an amazing performance and i guess like um i've, I've been a fan of zach Efron, i guess because i've kind of like grown up with him as i had I had a crush on him you know there's high school musical 17 again got he like a little romantic thing lucky ones um i've always think he's had a real um god he was in that um what was that film with um was it the one with me the paper boys Oh, Paperboy, no. yeah, thingy or something. I love the something. Paperboy. Yeah, you. <laughs> why knew you love the old But um, I've always felt that he and he's a really good comedic actor, but I think he does drama really well. Um, God, I remember he gives this like speech at I think it's at the end of Seventeen again, and he's like, but he's playing like his older version of the body, but yeah. But it was a really struggle though watching this film, watching him, mm. um, because. I could see the stuff and he's had so gentle in it and I could see the pain and all that, but it also, it was painful to look at his body. And I guess my thing is about this, like, you know, compared to Jeremy Allen White, Harris Dickinson, you know, also the wrestlers guy. And I even compared to the body of the original uh, Kevin, very different. And I, it kind of had me worried, I guess, about Zac Efron and this kind of, and there's a conversation that we just had with Kumail Nagiani talking about like, after Eternal's going to depression, but someone who extremely changed his body for that role. And I do think it, we can, I do think this is a good opportunity to kind of talk about like the pressures and, you know, about body dysmorphia, body changing, and what, people, what actors are doing to get into character. But he was so, it felt like, he felt like he was about to explode. 
that's how ripped he was and just so kind of chunky and an, I don't know what's going on. I, I, I believe that he had a car, there's something about a car accident, so he said his jaw done. So he looks different and it was a very, I felt really jar. it felt jarring a lot of the time looking at him. Um, but also understanding, even with that, he did a really good job, but it made me quite just sad. And this film's excellent, but for God's sake, please free Zac Efron from that pressure of having to look like that or, you know, for that for these roles, if it is just for the roles rather than nowadays. Um, I hope I kind of handled that okay, but I guess we're going to be talking about body stuff later on when we talk about your fat friend. But I think, you know, the way actors have to, the way actors have to really put their feel feel the need to put their body through the ringer in order to achieve a level of, I guess, authenticity. Um, I'm not sure how often I feel like it's a good idea to go to that level of extreme makeover or transformation. Yeah, and I guess it's kind of contextually because i feel like the iron claw like if you are playing a wrestler you can do it for the wrestling role but then you know it'd be great if zach efron can now have to play a role where he doesn't have to be yeah doing such an intense regime for it like he did baywatch right he did baywatch did neighbors he's playing the hot guy right so many of these things where he's having to do that level um but you look at Harris Dickinson, who was, you know, a bit taller, but again, he's he's like a great body. But it, it just think, and I hate to compare, but it, even Jeremy Allen White, who is very ripped, but like, in but a, also it doesn't seem like he's like that. Or I don't know, I don't follow Jeremy Allen yeah. White around, but it seems like that. I just think we need to have a conversation role. about steroids, the steroids that actors are using, because I just don't believe you get that body on its own, and I think. You know, we talk about women who have Botox, you know, Nicole Kim and Botox, um, you know, Sandra Bullock, they're having their lips done and all this. And we're so happy to talk about, or not happy, but I guess we have these conversations about what women have to do to, or feel feel the need to do to keep themselves young and the cosmetics things and being honest and open about it. But I guess with this, like for me, Zac Efron, it doesn't look like this is a body that you get from normal levels like Kumail now these bodies these super bodies you don't get that just by working out you don't get gain 30 pounds in like a month or two you know what I mean so I I I don't know I I don't know exactly what it takes to get a body looking like that I was surprised in this sense because I watched an interview with Zac Efron I think it was after he did Baywatch and he himself said that he's never going to get that big for a role again um I think he might be bigger in this role <laughs> than he was for Baywatch. Um, let's go to our screen stream or skip recommendation on the Iron Claw. Close. Screen. Hannah Flint. Screen. And I will also say screen. Uh, this was a fun movie. Um, <laughs> Sorry, this was a fun yeah, I movie. I was just talking. Do you want to yeah, I was just talking and not thinking. Oh, it's just some <laughs> autopilot mode. Fun movie where so many people die is so much fun. Gosh, you're going to love it. Uh, from a tragic family to a tragic city, it's time for Occupied City. In May 1940, Amsterdam was taken over by the Germans. Immediately, they set the clock forward. So it was the same time in Amsterdam as in Berlin. The weather report disappeared from the newspapers. It was now a military secret. All streetlights were turned off. Dutch organizations were Nazified or forbidden. 
Soon, the Nazis started to ban Jews from parks, pools, shops, cafes and schools, from all public life. Director Steve McQueen creates two interlocking portraits, a door-to-door excavation of the Nazi occupation that still haunts his adopted city, Amsterdam, and a vivid journey through the last years of pandemic and protest. Informed by the book Atlas of an Occupied City, Amsterdam 1940-1945, written by McQueen's wife, Bianca Stichter, it is narrated by British-Jewish actor Melanie Hyams. Um, okay, so I guess the first thing we should make note of is that this is a four-hour, 26-minute film with a 15-minute intermission. Uh, and it's, uh, I guess it's there's a lot to take in here. Um, Clarice, what was your kind of first impression? And I guess for that run type, because again, I think Steve McQueen said that he shot 36 hours of footage. And I did find it interesting that, you know, you could do any time. I can imagine this being actually put on in a museum and just ran all the way through, just narrating the whole thing and, and putting it up like that. And I'm pretty sure he's going to do that. But um, I guess, how do you feel about the time? Um, oh, the the four hours. I mean, I think it is kind of once you get to that length of film, it becomes, you know, it kind of shifts direction outside of it. You know, it's not really a narrative documentary. It's more an immersive sort of, it, I, 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 I found that I wasn't sort of like, you know, intently registering every single story, but it was more collectively putting the stories together into a picture of like how to, to reconsider my relationship with city and like history and geography. And I think what I found really interesting is I saw quite a few reviews going, Oh, this is quite a, you know, it's a kind of, it's a declaration that like, you know, Amsterdam has done done enough to um, sort of commemorate this history or to, you know, make people aware of what happened in all these individual houses. And I had a very different reaction to it. I think to me, it's more about kind of our individual relationship with our surroundings and to say, you know, it's like, you know, when you walk around London, you could do the same one with London when you walk around the city and you look at every building and there are so many stories in every brick and every stone. And it's about appreciating our place within that, which is why I like that the narration is telling the stories of what happened 1940 to 1945 in all of these houses. But what we're looking at are the modern occupants and also the modern city and seeing all the protests. I love that there's so many protests featured in this documentary. And to me, it's like, I don't think it's like, and I don't think it's criticizing Amsterdam at all. I think it's actually quite hopeful and it's going, well, look God, look at all these people who are continuing the legacy of the people who fought back against the Nazis. A lot of the stories are about, you know, resistance and, um, you know, people trying to hide Jewish people in their homes and trying to save them and trying to get them out of the city. And so I think to have those, hearing those stories and then looking at modern protests and going, that's the legacy. That's how you commemorate those people and what they did and the heroism is that you continue in your own life. So I think, yeah, it's 
it is for yeah it's four hours it's, it's hard to watch and it's obviously like tremendously depressing but i think at the end of it i didn't feel like drained i felt quite i don't know reinvigorated by it mm. did you have a similar um reaction Amon? i did not i did feel drained um i am always you know this is well documented at this point but I am the guy who's like, let the film justify its runtime. No matter what runtime I see, you won't know if it's earned that runtime until you actually sit down and watch the film. Um, so even though this film was like four hours, 26, 26 minutes, Steve McQueen is an excellent filmmaker. I was intrigued to check this one out, sat down to watch the film. And ultimately, I don't think... It's, a, it's an interesting thing because on, on the one hand, I kind of get why the film is as long as it is and that in a sense is to the film's strength because a lot of those, all of those stories, all of those people, the history matters and even though they are maybe not as, as well known as somebody like Anne Frank who is mentioned a couple of times here, it's still worth getting into those stories to a point but the way in which it was delivered in terms of the narration, I found it to be just numbing and monotonous after a point. Then also the way in which they, they, they haven't done this in chronological order. They've done it by sort of um, geographical sort of order and the constant sort of flip-flopping between, I, I kind of, I mean, I understand that that's what they were going for, but for me, that's another thing that, took me out of it at points now there are times when a link is really well done that you're back in it but as the film went on i found that to be less and less effective in that i was because yeah i was i was numbed <laughs> gradually um also because a lot of the stories feel very samey um as well and you add all that up, I just wasn't as emotionally moved as the film went on because it felt very, a lot of the stories felt very similar to what had come before in terms of what's already been said. So, yeah, I ultimately, I don't think this quite earned the four hour runtime. I think it might have been more effective if it was shorter. I, I agree and disagree because I also found, um, you know, I, I like there's this quote by Chantal Ackerman mm. about like when people say, oh, I didn't feel the time pass by. It's like, you know, you should like otherwise your time is being stolen. Like you're robbed, like you're still I'm stealing your time. Otherwise, you should feel the time mm. pass by. Right. You should feel it. And so part of me is like. As an, I, I kind of thought like, is this what it's trying to do? Of like, it's it's like endurance. It's like saying you need to sit, you know, you need to give your time to these mem mm. these people, to these presents that still lingers in Amsterdam. Because I think that's what it's really is about. Less bringing having the narration that are kind of really just taken from the book, um, and delivered in a quite unemotional way, actually, quite um, quite neutral, um, and then presenting with these quite mundane images of everyday life. You know, sometimes they manage to get like a nice you know a nice bit of visual sim you know, mm -hmm. symmetry 
I think they talk about bread rationing and they've got like pigeons mm-hmm. eating some bread, <laughs> which is like, mm-hmm. you know, um, uh, I, I think in a way, but I've my, I guess my problem with it and, and it's, there were so many accounts mm-hmm. from, you know, Jewish resistant fighters, you know, to Nazis, you know, all these other, all these things going on, but the length of time they gave to each account was so mm-hmm. brief that I left feeling I wanted to know more. And I, for me, I wondered if like, you know, it's both a very long movie and also very short in that I felt like I didn't, I was given too much information at once. And I guess I had a detachment to it. Whereas if I had a bit more time, I probably might have, you know, stuck with the four hours. Had it been like, um, you know, 10, 10, 15 minutes dedicated to someone. So I really got understood the, who they were. Did you feel it was glib? You know, still had that. And I, um, no, I don't think it was, I don't think at all it felt insincere or shallow or glib in that sort of way. I just came away feeling I wanted to know more information about it. And I came away feeling like this is the type of thing, this is where I think the artist, <laughs> Steve McQueen, the artist, the video mm. artist comes out more rather than the filmmaker of telling these stories it's not that I think it's insincere, but the potency, I just right. didn't, I struggled to kind of keep up. And so basically one account kind of ran into another and I felt like I just scraped the surface of what's going on. And I guess, I think Layla's Latif has talked about this and sometimes when it comes to like, um, when you're adapting books or like kind of, you know, things that are nonfiction, it's like, maybe it's better to just read the book. Mm. I would disagree that it doesn't add to the book because the book is just the accounts and for me like this documentary was so much about the relationship between the stories and the places where they took place so I think for me, I didn't I didn't need to have the details of each story because I was receiving them like in interaction with the with the building and like I think to me it was like it was basically the cinema equivalent like I did a walking tour of Amsterdam. Yeah, it basically is. <laughs> right? That's what it is. Yeah, and that's yeah. I think maybe I really liked it cuz that was how I grew up is that we would open the guidebook and we would find the paragraph and we'd as a like family read out like this is what happened in this building and I think that's a really interesting and quite powerful way to but you're to there. interact. But, but do you I not think, think that's the difference that you're there. For me, the no. difference where you're kind of, uh, that's what I think it'd be different for me if I was in the place where I could have the senses and listen to these things. But this was kind of like a museum tour. I don't know. Cause I think the sound design was so well done. Is that I was like picking up, you're right, because you can kind of hear little bits of the mm. city and little conversations yeah. and you're like, oh, what's that person doing? Um, I, I did not I, expect to hear the cause breathless 10 minutes in sang on a street i have to say <laughs> i swear that there's a scene where they're doing like kids are doing a play and i swear it's like a five nights at freddy's song <laughs> <laughs> like there's some like unintentionally like sort of or maybe intentionally like yeah. kind of humorous stuff but i think that's not disrespectful because it's like this is just no. what this is just what the city is like now and you have kids doing five nights at freddy's plays at the site mm. of like where this you know insane stuff. I can't remember what happened in that specific location, but, you know, where really monumental things happened. Hannah, you were talking about McQueen the artist versus McQueen the filmmaker earlier. 
there are times when those things align. And when that happens, that is where this documentary is at its best. Like, I think there's one scene in where the narration is talking about how the public square was used for Nazis. And then we are looking at sort of what's happening now. And it's like uh, protests about climate change or whatever. And that sort of stuff is great. Like when, when it lines up, when it's serendipitous like that, it's fantastic. There's just also a lot of stuff where the camera, as you say, will just sit on a mundane image of a theater that's always remained a theater. And that is like, it just makes you feel like because you had the footage, you wanted to put it in there where you didn't necessarily need it. It yeah. just it didn't line up on anything. It just it was just there. And then the narration will also be a similar thing to what's already been narrated a couple of hours previously. And it's just like, I, I, I get that this is a story. I get that this happened here, but what is this telling me that you haven't already kind of told me early on mm-hmm. in the film? That is where mm-hmm. sort of I had to couple my issues. Yeah, I guess I guess it is. I think this is a really kind of potent one for like it's your cup of tea yeah. or not. <laughs> I think this is far more like an art house documentary than I would say you know a straightforward Netflix mm-hmm. one, and whether. You know, I guess it's one of those things where, you know, you can be in it and you get swept away by it or the kind of the kind of repetitiveness and, you know, that sort of kind of the (laughs) it's it's again, it's that sort of minimalist Mm. really taking away any sort of heightened exploitative emotion about the situation. You Mm -hmm. know, I mean, that that it's just like this is it's like for me, this is like the shipping news, (laughs) you know. It's like hearing that it's kind of you either like that lulls you to sleep or keeps you up or wraps you to pause. And so I don't, you know, it's really hard to say whether it's like, um, you know, badly done or not. I just think this is a very specific example of it just being very an acquired taste. And if you have that taste or not, would you agree? I would. Have you got that museum brain? <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, I can totally I see it being in a museum exhibition, like you say, and I would like spend. 10, 15 minutes watching it likely and I would feel like I've gotten sort of most of what I need to get from this. You know what I mean? I guess that's the test is when you're at the museum and they have the video. How long did you sit there? <laughs> <laughs> I would probably watch all of it. And like I remember going to Epcot and you go on the Norway ride and that's really fun. It's a flume ride. But then there's a 10 minute video about Norway and the fishing industry afterwards most people don't watch mm. it. I do watch it. <laughs> <So> <laughs> I think that's the dividing line of the audience for this kind of documentary. <laughs> okay. Well, it's in cinemas, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's do our screen, stream, or skip verdict. Clarice. Well, I would screen it. <laughs> I would go see it. Um, yeah, I'm not, because I watch this at home. I'm not sure how the intermission mm. works because it's music. So you could stay. I'm guessing they keep playing it, but you have the option to go. You've got 15 minutes to, you know, go to the bathroom and get stuff. Yeah. Uh, I would stream it. Um, and normally I wouldn't say this, but the pause button is there for your benefit with this one. Yeah. Yeah, I'd probably lean stream or I'm pretty sure they're going to do something with this up as an uh, art installation or something like that in a longer form. So maybe also do that. Maybe go to Amsterdam. Mm. Maybe <laughs> maybe see if you can stream it, but then go walk around Amsterdam and go to the places, you know, get the full immersive experience <laughs> of it. There we go. Okay, well, well, from one 
documentary to another. This is your fat friend. Just say fat. Not curvy or chubby or chunky or fluffy or mortal love or big guy or husky or obese or overweight. Just say fat. The very first piece was called A Request From Your Fat Friend. And like 30,000 people read it in a week. I was like, whoa, okay. I do my hair, toss, check my nails. Baby, how you feeling? Feeling good, good now. now. <laughs> hair, toss, check my nails. Baby, how you feeling? Feeling good, good as hell. Well. Why do you sound like cats? Like, uh, <laughs> 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 Because that's what my singing voice sounds like. This is Your Fat Friend. Made over six years, director Jeannie Finley charts the rise of writer and activist Aubrey Gordon from anonymous blogger to New York Times best-selling author and beloved podcaster. Her aim, a paradigm shift in the way we see fat people and the fat on our own bodies. Her life-changing work has brought her an ardent international audience, but also threats to her life. One of her biggest challenges is getting her parents to listen. Isn't that the way? Oh my God. (laughs) So we'll get to the parents in a second. But I did. So I actually saw this with a Q&A with Jeannie Finley and Aubrey Gordon, who um, the vibe was so good. (laughs) It's just a really nice Q&A and that just everyone in the audience was so chill. Um, And... Jeannie Finley was talking about the fact that she wanted to make kind of more of a an overarching um I guess like documentation of the state of like fatness and fat culture and how fatness is seen and then she found Aubrey Gordon's blog and was like oh holy shit I'm just gonna make this movie about this woman because she's incredible and the way that she writes kind of sums everything up and also, I think the documentary benefits a lot from actually just lived experience and spending time with one person's experience with their own body. I mean, Hannah, I wonder what you thought just about the, yeah, choosing to, to make it about one person as opposed to like yeah. an entire thing. Yeah, if they've zoomed in um, mm-hmm. a lot and I think she's a good anchor for sure. Um, I found she's, you know, a great writer. I hadn't really heard of her, but then, you know, again, she's got this, um, so, but then she, I really like how they use a lot of her writing, they narrate a lot of her writing, she does it as well. Um, and yeah, I guess it's that compelling, she can kind of stand in for a lot of people who are, who are fat and, you know, and certainly that's how her success is, is that her relatability. She's charming, she's, you know, amiable, she's, you know, funny, um and you know the fact that her parents were involved in it was good i mean gosh there's one scene at a table where i'm so glad they kept it in but i think they're having thanksgiving mm. and i don't know who oh, this yeah. person was if she was like a elderly grandma or something it was like uh and she was like going just remember set your scales back 15 pounds and then she's just talking about that like weight thing and you're like this is so insidious it's so right right um i probably say like I'm sure me and you, Clarice, probably have a lot, um, can understand this a lot more, maybe just because it's weight, diet, culture, and all that type of stuff has been, is so inherent in the way women bond. I think she mentions in this, she mentions in the, um, 
the doc about how when she's talking to her mother about an article that she sent her saying most women bond by how much they telling each other how much they hate their own bodies and you know i was raised in a household like where you know diet culture and stuff what we see on screen you know I did a chapter in my book about eating disorders and that representation about what we see in that image of it. Um, I guess, sorry, to go back, to circle back, all of this to say, to go back to your point, I did like that they have a central figure in her. I would have liked a little bit of a zoom out, maybe, um, because I think some of the, some of the, some of the moments felt like filler and I don't know if they were probing enough. I kind of wish it was a little bit, if you're going to focus on this one character, let's have a real cathartic sort of interrogation of this. And I think it was a bit, I guess, quite kindly in a way that felt, okay, if you've got these issues, let's actually really confront it. So the scenes with the mum and dad, I think they kind of let them off a little bit. I don't know. And I I really liked that it hones in on one person because she actually mentions when, so she writes the blog anonymously and then she publishes a book and there's a moment of like, you have to have the author's photo. She's like, shit, I have to like reveal myself to the world. And she has a conversation about how she's like, God, how are people going to react to this photo? Because some people are going to say I'm too fat. Some people are going to say I'm too thin. Like, how dare you talk about this? How dare you talk about that? And I think there's a lot around the conversation of body image, fatness, weight, where it's like it has to be individualized because there are so many factors that go into it and go into someone's relationship with their own body. So I kind of, I think, and Jeannie Finley has talked about this, I think considering... The, the profound lack of documentaries like this um i think until maybe the culture has a better way of talking generally about it this might be the best angle to take on it because and Amon, i wanted to ask about that and you're so right it it sort of doesn't just focus on like her as an activist and a writer it's just a lot about her like hanging out as well <laughs> and like i was really struck by like some kind of like the whiplash of her life where she gets like a message from adele be like yeah. you're awesome and then the next day like a death threat mm-hmm. um i wonder if you just kind of emotionally that yo-yo effect what was it like <sighs> use the word whiplash that is apt um also, just the way of the world and the way of the internet, unfortunately, uh, in today. Um, and that was very authentically represented. It's obviously sickening that she sent what she sent. Um, and I do, but, but I do like the fact that they depict the positive as well as the negative and really get into both sides of that. I think that's really well done. As you guys mentioned, I think Aubrey Gordon herself is a really great subject and anchor for this film. I like how she's given the space to be vulnerable, but also be funny and be frank. That I think one of the things that made me laugh when she um, is giving us sort of uh, she, she, she she's going through her diet book collection, and <laughs> some of the titles for these books are just completely insane, and the, the reactions to that were great. Um, so so yeah, um, I I like the fact that she gets to show all the colours uh, of her personality and the film feels better for how intimate and sensitive it is. I know um, Jeannie Finlay, the director, has this sort of fly-on-the-wall approach that she brings to all her work and you can see that in, her, in, in, her, in, in this documentary. 
Yeah, and I think having clarity about breaking down, like, I liked that it wasn't, and the documentary's sort of critical of this, it wasn't just like a, oh my god, like, we just gotta love our bodies, and da-da. it's more like, no, like, being fat in modern society, like, you have a fucking nightmare going on the airplane, yeah. you have a nightmare going to the doctors, mm. like, yeah, you have maybe a nightmare relationship with your parents. I liked that it was like, no, let's actually have a conversation about that stuff, because in the Q&A, I was really struck by how a lot of the questions were people who were just like, oh my god, I have a platform to talk about this, and there was like a medical student who was talking about the research, and none of the research actually, it like applied to such a small weight bracket that the research was useless, because like, and I think they mentioned it in the documentary, like birth control is like, yeah, less only tested. Yeah, it's only tested Uncertain. up to a certain weight. Yeah. And they've no idea whether it works for people over that weight, which is fucking ridiculous. Yeah. So I like that it was that that it was going, these are the conversations we need to have. We don't just need to have the like feel good about yourself conversation. Yeah. Um, which I think leads into the stuff with the parents. I mean, you would say about the writer writer with parents situation. Oh my god. <laughs> relatable. Trying to get my parents to read anything I write is a nightmare. My dad hasn't even finished reading my book. <laughs> Dickhead. I love you. <laughs> um, can I just add, like, yeah, I guess that's the thing with the parents were so, like, lovely and sweet and stuff. And I guess there's, you know, they're kind of a bit accountable. And they talked about the Weight Watchers and uh the kind of cantaloupe and cottage cheese which is really funny because i just saw lisa frankenstein and the mum eats cantaloupe and cottage cheese in it very so it's like 80s. a very specific 80s thing that could have been a bit more directness there's a bit where she talks about how um anorexia and actually a lot of people who have eating disorders who are above a certain weight have exactly the same symptoms and behaviors as anorexia but they're called i can't remember the name it's like it's like a different name, but it's basically anorexia, but you're fat. Oh, is it like disordered eating or something? No, something. They it was just, they, but she basically said anorexia. She says anorexic, but there's a uh, there's a pref- prefix to it that they call it for specifically when you're anorexic, but you're fat. And I remember like oh. writing in my book about how like, um about how you never see really like eating disorders presented with fat people. And like there was that movie like To the Bone which is probably one of the few few films that you see that. I mean, the whale in some way does show an eating disorder because they're disordered eating, but I kind of felt like it was really demonizing in that way it was presented. So I really appreciate her talking about that because that's like, you know, the fact is she says she hadn't eaten, you do. And I think most people, I think most women at some point in their life have had some sort of disordered eating, eating disorder. So I really appreciate that she was so honor, like vulnerable and honest with herself. I guess I just wish she would have kind of really maybe pushed a little bit back. Not pushed a bit. Again, it's the difficulty. It's your parents. But um, I felt those relationships maybe could have been, I'd love to know a little bit more about, like, I guess, ownership of, like, what's passed down and the way people ignore things. And I, I for me, just on a, on a sense, what I realized with watching this film from the beginning, and I really appreciate it, is that I have definitely um, ha- in the past and, like, had quite narrow-minded views towards fat people certainly things like and then you know and again this is conditioned by a society that's basically telling you that fat is bad fat is wrong Mm -hmm. like if you want to get an airplane seat lose weight and then you're like 
when she says there's a line in it, it's like, you're the peer person you're telling to lose weight, you just need to work harder. They've already tried harder. And I thought mm. that is so powerful. That is so powerful and so true. We don't know what the hell is going on in people's lives. You know, when she wrote that Adele article saying, she's not talking about your, her weight, stop talking about hers. And I think that's so correct. And definitely when I was watching this, when she was talking about theater seats and that, I'm like, why don't we have bigger seats for people who are larger size? Why don't we do that in theaters? Why don't we make this effort? I would add, it was interesting. They said, uh, Jeannie Finley said in the Q&A that part of the release plan for this is also to work with Picture House to ensure that theaters, the their cinema seats are accommodating, which is really nice. Like it's nice to have an active change. Yeah. Um, because, you know, that's such a small thing to do. Isn't it all ca- part of it is capitalism? Like you think about airplane seats, didn't they used to oh, have yes. so many? They've just added them in to make them smaller just so they can fit more passengers on. You know, yeah. God, it, it, honestly, when she was talking about how she had to, you know, she when she would get a, a work trip and it was like, they might not let me on the plane. You know, this awkwardness of like being like trying to be as small as possible. It was just heartbreaking. And yeah, I felt, you know, it really kind of really reminded me of just just how much harder it is to navigate in a world that's basically telling you your body is wrong. I was going to say, I, I just read something this week that another airline is now going to start weighing its passengers as well as luggage. Um, yeah. Uh, so reading that in the same week as watching There's this. There's no way people are going to agree to that. That's, that's, that's no. That's insane. That's what I read. Yeah. Oh my God. Well, but that's the good thing about this documentary is that it will, you know, awaken people to do more activism because accommodations are small things. But if they help people be comfortable and happy, just fucking do them. How did it? So, I mean, how did it make you like when you were watching it? How did it make you feel, Clarice? It's tricky with like autism that I've learned a lot about. It's like every autistic person basically has some level of disordered eating mm. because it ha- gives you a really detached relationship with mm. your body. So I think, like, it it definitely made me think a lot about like how I talk to myself <laughs> and how I talk to my own body mm. and that you know it's it's nice that's why I really liked getting away from this like so much of of body image activism I feel like or like the really like capitalist like Instagram infographic <laughs> style of of like body image activism is just like you are everyone is a goddess and all be- and it's i there is a place for that but i also really appreciate getting toxic positivity more to a, yeah more to a place of just like this is my body yeah. and like i use it and i'm just moving through the world with it and i appreciate that that was aubrey's perspective on it of going like yeah, I feel hot. Sometimes I don't feel hot, but like this is just my body and I just want to be able to live my life yeah. and not like and I've had issues with doctors and weight and it's yeah. just like fucking insane the way that you're treated. You know, if you don't hit a certain BMI and I think to kind of try to take the shame element out of that and go actually no, I'm not at fault for not fulfilling this person's idea of what a body should look like that person's fucked up for having that that idea in the first place mm, yeah so i think um i think in terms of reframing 
how we think about our own bodies like there's something really really positive about this documentary that i appreciated mm. yeah agreed um okay so screen stream or skip on your fat friend aman screen hannah i'll say screen too and i would also say screen mm. right well before we get into our hot take we've got a extra bonus interview for you with maybe the, maybe not the dapperest, because I think Coleman Domingo's got that title, but certainly one of the <laughs> suavest stars in Hollywood right now. Uh, but before that, let's have a little quick reminder of the movie that he's recently been in. Look at what they publish. Look at what they expect us to write. I just want to rub their noses in it. Don't want a nation under the white media. Yes, we brought the same track back because it's so good and this film is so good. We are, of course, talking about American Fiction, which was written and directed by Cord Jefferson in his feature directorial debut. And among others, it stars Sterling K. Brown, who I had the absolute pleasure of interviewing just a few days ago. He was in town, but we did this interview via Zoom, and he was a lot of fun. Uh, we talked about American Fiction. We talked a little bit about Invincible Season 2, uh, which he is in, and he's awesome in. I didn't even get to properly ask him about This Is Us, because we were having so much fun, uh, and I ran out of time. Uh, but these 15 minutes are pretty fun. This is one of the uh, most enjoyable chats I've had with anyone in a long time. So I hope you enjoy too, me and Sterling. K Brown. Welcome to the Beta Black Podcast, Sterling K Brown. How are you, sir? I'm doing well, sir. How about yourself? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Very excited to chat with you. I've been a big fan of your work for a long time, so this is a treat for me. Uh, first and foremost, congratulations, Oscar nominated. Uh, that's incredible. Uh, I did a little <laughs> leap of joy when I saw that on screen. Where were you? I'm sure you've been asked this a lot, but where were you when you got your Oscar nomination and who was the first person to message you? Because I imagine your phone was crazy that day. Phone was crazy and, mm -hmm. and even crazier. I was asleep when the nominations came through because it was 5.30 in the morning on the West Coast where I live. Mm -hmm. And my phone had died because I fell asleep oh, on my wow. kid's floor. So I had to plug my phone in in the morning as I was getting them ready to go to school, making breakfast. Mm. And then I unplugged the phone because the charge had come back and I had 126 messages. Wow. And I was like, <laughs> oh, something must have happened. <laughs> uh, and I'm trying to remember, uh, my publicist was the first person that I talked to for sure. I can't remember who left the first message. It was probably him too, because mm. he, he's probably up at 5.15 or 5 o'clock in the morning, like patiently waiting for the uh, for the announcements to come out. But yeah, that was that's how it went down. Amazing, amazing. Was that ever a dream you had? And were you always confident you'd get there? Or was that not something that you thought about too often? I think everybody dreams about it. Like if mm. you're in this business and you, you grow up watching the Oscars or the Emmys or any of these award shows, you always must imagine like what it's like to be in those rooms, mm -hmm. to walk up on that stage, what have you. So I think everybody dreams about it. Um, whether or not I thought it was actually going to come to fruition, I don't know. Like 
I think I allowed myself to think more after um, I won the Emmy mm -hmm. um, and, and then I won another Emmy. And then I was like, man, well, you know, that's part of the EGOT. Like maybe mm -hmm. I can find ways to get like these other things too. But before mm -hmm. that, I was just happy to be a working actor. I was happy to be able to play, pay the bills, provide mm -hmm. for my family, do work that I thought was meaningful, right? And be compensated for it. So I think the dreams get a little bit bigger as you mm -hmm. as you taste a little bit more of the possibility of it. You know what I'm yeah. saying? Yeah. I hear, I hear. I would love to see you get that you got one day. Uh, who knows? Who knows? <laughs> Putting it out to the universe. Let's do it. Yes, um, sir. So in American fiction, you, know, you normally play characters that sort of hold things together, keep things together. Here, as Cliff, he's a bit of a mess. Did you yeah. find yourself flexing acting muscles that you typically don't use because of the character that you're playing here? And if so, what muscles were they? Oh, that's interesting. That's an interesting question. I, I like. I think, I think at least they're they're not muscles that people get to see a lot. Mm. Like my wife, when she saw it, she'd be like, "Oh yeah, you got a chance to be foolish, Sterling." <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, boom. and she's intimately familiar with foolish Sterling, mm -hmm. um, where the rest of the world may not be. I I think I I am, at nature, a pretty silly person. Mm -hmm. um who enjoys sort of just keeping people a little bit off guard right you know mm -hmm. to be truth be told what people know me for is sort of the dude who keeps things together and has sort of got the weight on his world etc cetera, etc cetera. Mm -hmm. um but like I've, I've got a chance to flex these muscles before but i do enjoy i enjoy making people laugh Mm -hmm. You know, it's one thing when people come up to you all the time and say, man, you you make me cry all the time. I'm like, thank you. I appreciate it. I want to try to, you know, pull something else out of out of folks from time to time, too. Um, it, I think it's a matter of degree. Um, and what I mean by that, when you're doing something that's more comedic, like you, you have permission to turn it up just a little bit, um, especially because he's a mess, right? And especially because... He's newly out of the closet. And like basically metaphorically, he's been trying to like clamp things down and not express his truth. Mm -hmm. And so now that we find him, he's like, I'm going to express all my truth. Mm -hmm. And if you try, if you dare get in the way, then you may have to catch the shock waves of truth coming at you, like waves, you know what I'm saying? So that's the other thing I think. I, I'm, I'm much more comfortable with comedy that comes from real life circumstances and character rather than just playing something for a bit you know bits are great bits of fun you know sketch comedy is not the thing that i grew up doing or what have you um so like the character and what he was going through made for choices that made sense to me that were also comedic you know yeah uh you mentioned by the way sort of making me laugh uh your Hot Ones episode, which I rewatched the other day, is is that that made me laugh a lot. <laughs> uh, Thank all you, sir. time, all time great. You are a crazy person for taking that much of the bomb. By the way, I've I've eaten a little bit of it and just gone crazy. You walk that thing down. You're nuts. I gotta get. I gotta eat my meat. My mom would be mad at me. She says, <laughs> "Waste not, want not, my brother." I don't like to waste food. You know what I mean? That's perfect. That's amazing. Uh, talking about Cliff. 
to your point, it feels like he's all or nothing, go big, go home in that type of mode. Is yeah. there an acting equivalent of that where you've just said, screw it, I'm going to go for it? And did it pay off if if, if you want for it? That's a good question. Um, you know, it's interesting. So I think in playing, uh, I did uh, The People versus OJ, um, mm-hmm. American Crime Story, and I played Christopher Darden. And he's a real-life person who's still alive, who lives in the same city that I, I live in or what have you. Mm-hmm. And I knew in the back of my mind, if, if he ever watched the show, I wanted him to feel as if he saw himself or some essence of himself in the character. So I, I say that in terms of like the voice that you use, do you go for a full on impersonation or do you try to find something that's a little bit of you, a little bit of them and, and sort of find the amalgamation of the two? And anytime I try like a full on impersonation or even when I watch someone who does like a very good impersonation, I get caught up more in the impersonation than I do in the delineation, right? Mm. I'm like, oh, what a neat trick that person is doing rather than like, oh, wow, what an interesting person I'm getting to know. Mm-hmm. So I would say that, you know, I always try to find, you go for it, but like in going for it, what you're going for is what you think is something that people can relate to. I think if it's too much of a, a caricature or whatnot, then that sort of puts people at a distance. You want people to lean into your performance rather than step back and watch from afar. So, so yeah, that's going forward for me is finding the thing that makes people lean in. Mm. I love that. Fantastic answer. Um, One of the things this film does so well is poke fun at the Hollywood machine a little bit and about what white audiences want from uh, black art. I'm curious because one, one of the ways in which the film does that is to, you know, at one point you, it goes into Monk's imagination a little bit and puts yeah, and, that, and, and that sort of thing. I'm wondering, have any of those scripts ever crossed your desk? And one of the defining factors in you saying yes or no to those projects? That's a good question. Um, I haven't gotten a lot of those scripts, but the, the times in which they have come across my desk, like folks would say things like he needs to lose the intelligence. Like he's, you know, mm. he needs to lose that. I went to Stanford University and I went to NYU for grad school. It's like he's got to lose all that schooling and whatnot and just sort of like get real. But mm. in my mind, I was like, you don't even know what real is because you you have an idea in your head that is based on a trope, that is based on a stereotype of what you think authentic black life is. Mm. And while there is authentic black life that is in the hood, that is, you know, that that is part of us, but it's not the totality of us. Mm-hmm. And if I dare to try to show you something that I know to be real that you haven't seen, and then you'll tell me that that's not real, like, come on, bro. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. I feel like we're catching up a little bit. Mm-hmm. I feel like uh, that being Black and being intelligent aren't seen as mutually exclusive in the same way that I think that they were earlier in in Hollywood, mm-hmm. um, and that we still have a ways to go with that. Mm-hmm. But I think ultimately I knew in my soul that that just wasn't my path, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I and I've listen, I've, I've played both sides of the law uh, on different TV shows in the States and have been happy to play a criminal and not be a criminal, happy to play a cop and not be a cop, like real talk. Mm-hmm. But 
at the end of the day, I think that my path that has been ordained by the divine, by God, had something different in store for it. And I'm now just sort of starting to hit that stride. Yeah, yeah, I love that. Uh, and I, 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 I say I've been a big fan of your work. I really liked your work on personal interest, especially. Uh, yeah, I, I did, did a rewatch of that not too long ago, and it, it still, still <laughs> holds up. Holds up. Um, this is the third film in a row where your character is confronting homosexuality in some way or form, and I'm wondering is is that purely coincidence, or is there something more that's drawing you to take on these roles? It's a great question. Mm. It is it, it's coincidence, but it's also each role, uh, whether it's Honk for Jesus, Biosphere, or American Fiction, I found to be fascinating mm. and offered like a slightly different challenge as an actor and a slightly different sort of illumination of humanity because mm -hmm. in Honk for Jesus, you're dealing with a preacher mm. who loves God, who considers himself to be a vessel of the Lord, who is here to do God's work but in his mind has an affliction that mm. he does not know how to deal with, right? Um, and he wants to be used of service to help young men, but if he gets too close, then he's sort of like a moth to a flame burned by the fire, right? Mm -hmm. And so I was always been fascinated with the churches, the black church's preoccupation with homosexuality mm -hmm. and how they have to vilify it for some reason more than anybody else because they feel incredibly threatened by it. So that was just something that fascinated me. Then in biosphere, you're dealing with someone who thinks that they are liberal, who mm -hmm. thinks that they are accepting of all walks and forms of life and is not quick to judge until they're confronted with something that they didn't anticipate. And they realize, oh man, I'm not as open as I thought that I was. And sort of like, how that sort of movie could speak to cisgendered heterosexual men who think themselves to be one thing and then ultimately they recognize it like they still have a ways to go mm -hmm. right and then with this one this is this is with american fiction it's more about the people i know who've lived in the closet who have yearned to live a quote unquote normal life because they don't want to rock the boat. They know that their lifestyle is upsetting to their family. Mm -hmm. And because of their love for their family, they try to live a life that is inauthentic to themselves. Mm -hmm. And I think if I wanted to say anything with Cliff, it's like, you can't live it for anybody else. Mm -hmm. like, you got to live it for yourself, right? Mm -hmm. So each they they happened like boom, boom, boom. And there's, there's a couple of things that got shot in between that just haven't come mm -hmm. out yet. Right. So I was like, yeah. man, I wonder like you and you're one of the first people to ask me about it, which I actually appreciate. Um, but I feel like everybody's story has value in it. And the only question that I ask myself is these three movies came up is like, can I do it in an authentic way? Can I do it in a way where I don't have step it? or I, I feel uncomfortable doing this, or I feel uncomfortable doing that. Because if I feel uncomfortable, then it's un it's somebody else's job to do. And I was like, let the person who can do it right, do it. And each time you sit down, you pray, you look at the script and you say like, well, this came to me for a reason. Mm -hmm. So, and I, I try to listen. I try to listen to the still small voice that says like, you may be ready for something that you don't even know that you're ready for. And so the universe said, 
boom, boom, boom. I'm going to give you these three in a row. <laughs> and I was like, all right, let me see what I can do. And mm -hmm. I, it's been a really rich and, and wonderful sort of growth process for me because I think they came in the right order for me as well. Mm. You know? Yeah, yeah. I love that. Uh, last couple of questions as we wrap up. It's well documented now that the working title for this movie was, was Puck, uh, which, is, yes, which is great. Has there been any other movie that you've been working on that has had initially a different title, which they've then changed? And if so, what was that? And then also, i got to ask real quick, uh, Angstrom Levy in Invincible. I really love what they've done with, the, with, with that so far. We've got the second half coming up soon. Yes, sir. What can we expect from your character in the second half that we're getting later on? <laughs> All right, I'll add to the second question first because I had a really fun time doing that show. Uh, Invincible is my, my jam. So good. When I watch, <laughs> bro, when I watch season one and yeah. they show like the coda, the last part of the of the pilot episode, yes. you're like, oh snap, <laughs> we're in for something special, right? Yeah. So yeah. to get invited to play with them was a great a great thing. He's he he'll be back with a vengeance. He's mm -hmm. got he's got. He's he's heavy. He's heavy in the back half okay. of the of this season. So look out. His <laughs> brain is still spilled outside of his head. He's crazy. Mm -hmm. Um, and then in terms of working titles of things, I the only thing that pops to mind immediately is that This Is Us was originally called 36. And mm -hmm. it was called 36 because it was everybody celebrating their 36th birthday. Mm. And then Dan realized, like, well, they ain't gonna be 36 the whole damn time we're doing the show. <laughs> so I gotta kind of flip it up a little bit. So I think he found I think he found the better uh title. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. Uh, I wish I could talk to you about that because I'm such a massive fan. I'm such a massive fan of that, but I gotta let you go. Uh, K. Brown, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Pleasure's <laughs> mine, brother. All the best to you, man. Right. Speaking of Oscar nominated films, it's time for it's time to get into our so the academy has announced it will introduce a new category for best achievement in casting rolling out from 2026 onwards it's the first new competitive award award in more than 20 years casting directors play an essential role in filmmaking and as the academy evolves we are proud to add casting to disciplines that we recognize and celebrate uh, uh, said a statement from the Academy CEO, Bill Kramer and President Janet Yang. We congratulate our casting directors, branch members on this exciting milestone and for their commitment and diligence throughout this process. I mean, about bloody time, bitch. <laughs> These films don't cast, cast themselves. Although some would argue that 90% of directing is casting. <laughs> um, okay, so we were going to discuss like what are the big casting... Uh, sorry... What are the categories that are missed? I think we all, I think I know what Amon's going to be immediately. <laughs> what am I going to be? You say. Because I think I, because I would agree with you. And someone said this, someone made a point about this. I can't remember someone tweeted about it saying, saying, oh, so all those years saying that best stunts, there's not enough room for the, for, act, for any more category. Tell the people they said no to best stunts. Well, I guess they can make room. Mm -hmm. Amon, am I right? Was that what you were going to say? You are 50% right. Because uh, that is it. one of two categories that I was going to posit um, as something the Oscars should absolutely consider. But stunts. do we all agree? Do we all agree? Stunts should be definitely considered? Mm. I think a good way, instead of doing that bullshit popular film thing, like, 
if you do best stunts, well, yeah. <laughs> it's obviously, you know, what well, we'd have John Wick this year, Mission Impossible, mm-hmm. maybe Guardians. You know, you get the big Hollywood mm-hmm. movies because they tend to have stunts in them. <laughs> exactly. Um, so, yeah, stunts absolutely one. The other one that I think we should definitely start recognizing vocal acting. I think there should be awards for that. Because those performances. Voice acting. Voice acting yeah. Those performances are never really in the mix, and I, I get why, um, you know, it's a different skill to a degree, but it still can make or break a movie, and the, the ones which are really good really do stand out in an amazing way, and I feel like those... I feel, I feel like that is one thing would be good to actually have its own individual category. Um because right now they they stand no chance of <laughs> of getting into the acting categories, um, and it would be a good way to honor more of the work that goes into animation. In rather than just limiting it to sort of the categories it's in right now, so so that'd be another one for me that I'd say we should give a category to. Mm-hmm. Clarice, you got one. I they used to do. Like back in the old days, <laughs> like back in the old okay. days when we had the talkies, Hollywood, they used to do like best best titles. Yeah, like a title, like Ooh. posters. Like I would love there to be an Oscar to kind of um, both graphic design celebrate and encourage. Yeah, beautiful posters and title sequences mm. and title work because I think sometimes a don't appreciate it and also we get lazy and they do the floating yeah. heads posters <laughs> you know oh god yeah right so i feel like if you had an oscar for like yeah good graphic design work yeah. that would encourage more imaginative title sequences and posters Clarice, what do you mean by title sequences like opening sequence the title cards the and... titles okay when the name okay. of the movie comes just, up on the checking. screen <laughs> but like oh because obviously back in the old day you know they used to do those beautiful cards and that would be yeah. the very beginning of the movie yeah most of the time would be you... these beautifully painted well, title cards but also lisa frankenstein not so could get an oxygen just because this one was like a very nice silhouette black and white animation yeah you know, that sort of thing. or like Ooh. or like candy man the new candy man that was an amazing opening sequence animation right mm. um but also yeah, yeah so That's you know true. so there we go i agree that's a good one i would like to pose like the award for that one, that one line actor who gets one scene but makes a difference. Do you know what I mean? You know, we watch a movie and there's this, this one guy who just just the fucking just nails their job. You know what I mean? Like I always think about best day player. Think, yeah, <laughs> best day. Yeah, yeah. I always think about that guy who um, who was in Captain America: The Winter Soldier, and Frank Grillo is like set up the. Captain America's just on the speech over the tannoy, and so it's like, oh, who's yeah, who's Hydra, who's who's, who's who's Shield, and then yeah. like he's like, you better you better put that helicopter that helipad in the air, and he goes, cats a cancer, Captain his orders, and it's like it's yeah. so good. He's just he nailed yeah. it. He delivered it. Yeah. So I'm like celebrate the me, one 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 scene wonders. Can you just give me your Frank Grillo impression again? I just I just need that memorized. Get the hell up out in the air. <laughs> Hail Hydra. I love it. I love it. Yeah. 
Recasting, please. Hannah Flint. I would also. Winter Soldier. I would also maybe <laughs> throw in ensemble cast. Yeah, the I know the SAGs. The SAGs do it, yeah. So spirit, I think it's Indie Independent Spirit Awards. Mm. That'd be good. But I guess the thing is, though, you could get into the real minutiae of things, right? Mm-hmm. And it might. Um, and these ceremonies are long as fuck anyway. Um, yeah, that's true. Yeah. But no, I mean, stunts I think is definitely one, regardless that they need to add. I'm shocked that we're still having this conversation now. To be honest, it should have been a done deal ages ago, because. But what about soundtrack? Are... You know what I mean? They always Sound... say original song, but what about original soundtrack? Song. Like, who has put together the best? Do you know what I mean? Then you wouldn't mm. have like two songs for Barbie, <laughs> like Barbie soundtrack. Mm. Juno, that would fucking win. That year would win. Mm. Be but you know what I mean? Drive, that's a great soundtrack. If they did a soundtrack, and then you could like actually, it's not just the composer who does score, but sometimes putting together or even creating original songs, but like in that, how it works, like how actually it complements it and whoever's the music supervisor, I think they should get awards. That's a good shout. You're, never, you're not going to hear me uh, not agree with you about anything music related. Let's honor the... <laughs> Uh, absolutely do more categories more categories for that best animal um, actor Messi <gasps> oh my god yes in the yeah. role of Snoop I mean, the palm the, yeah. the cans have like the palm dog or whatever palm dog, the yeah. Oscars could, could do something like that I yeah. guess yeah because yeah, Messi won <laughs> this year Good little boy. Yeah. Lionel, I always said they should do an interview magazine interview with Messi the dog and Lionel Messi the footballer. Yes. <laughs> yeah, so, I would be. Okay. Oh, and they had the donkey from sees the banshees of Inisherin and donkey. Oh my god! Yeah, yeah. what was the donkey called? Nancy um, or something? Maybe I can't remember what the dog donkey was called. Um, I I I I think there's a really there was a really good documentary that came out a few years ago called Casting By. And so in the spirit of cast best casting, I recommend go watching that documentary because it also talks about how the Directors Guild of America wouldn't let casting directors be called casting directors in, as a credit because they said it's not... It's, yeah, exactly. I, I, Clarice did the most... Love, 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 love has my role. She's like, ugh. Anyway, if you can find that documentary, I really recommend it. Um, but I guess for now, thank you for tuning in and happy viewing via whatever medium is safest for you. Please subscribe, rate and review the podcast. It makes a difference. And tweet us any questions or hot takes at Fade to Black Pod on Twitter. Uh, you can find me at Hannah Ines Flint on Instagram or Letterboxd. You can find me at I'm on Woman on Twitter and Instagram. Can I also just say a thank you to Sarah Veal and the organisers of the Black to the Future Festival for asking me to host a panel earlier this week. Uh, which went really, really well. Uh, so thank you to all my fellow panelists and everyone who was in the audience that night. It was really fun. I'm at Clarice Lou on Twitter and at Clarice Lockery on Instagram. And thank you, Spider-Man. Still playing that game. <laughs> <laughs> so still, the, what, you still on the first one? <laughs> yes. You're taking your time, girl. It's <laughs> a long game. It's really not that long. Oh my please. god! <laughs> Stop telling her how long she should be able to play a game, you man. <laughs> I'll just say she's taking her time. She can maybe she likes to take her time. Yeah, like maybe she likes school. to luxuriate in this oh world. Boy. It's a little treat. Yeah, it's also it's quite repetitive, so I don't play it in huge stretches because I'm like I'm just doing the same thing over and over again. So. 
Maybe if you just the play game... the main. No. Oh, so sorry. <laughs> I should be finished because I should only be playing the main story. Some of us like to explore no. the city and get a vibe for what's happening on the street because we're actually playing as Spider-Man, who you is a street hero. Dictator. Right? How am I supposed to be Spider-Man if I'm not stopping when I see somebody in need of help? Although I didn't like when I went to the prison and beat all the prisoners up. I felt weird. I don't like being Spider-Man in that moment. <laughs> well, Nat. Misogynistic. Oh my bombshell. god. Bombshell. <laughs> I think it's just anti-Spider-Man. Oh, wow. Anti- I'm anti-Spider-Man. Anti-Spider-Man. Yeah, I've always thought so, Mon. You've always your yeah. anti-Spider-Man agenda needs to stop now. Yeah, Spider-Man oh would gosh. not approve. Wow. Of speeding through. <laughs> Miles Morales turns his back on you. Mm-hmm. Wow. Like, no, How dare you? Miles. How very dare you? <laughs> Forgive me. <laughs> you went evil. You you Doctor Strange yourself your way into Armageddon. I'm so sorry. And that's it. <laughs> Farewell. <laughs> I'm on. Wow. Farewell, Clarice. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm going. Bye. I'm going. And film friends. It's time to fade to black. <laughs> <laughs>